John 10, 11, and 12. Came to the world, they didn't recognize him. Came to his own, they didn't receive him. Next session. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Again, appreciate all of you coming for our discussion and many, uh, many more uh, through the live stream. Uh, I wanted to make a couple of announcements. I've been told uh, uh, that food and drink is available at the breaks, so make sure and take advantage of that. However, uh, do not bring the food and drinks into the auditorium. I think there's a rule about that, and there's, uh, they'll call the police on you if, if you come. So, <laughs> so uh, make sure and be, be good about that. Uh, also, I was told that the uh, recording for the online people did not happen, the sound did not happen, uh, when we did our introductions. And we had Joe Parle uh, give this first session. Joe Parle's the provost. Uh, and uh, what else are you there, Joe? Senior professor. Senior professor at the College of Biblical Studies in Houston. Uh, he was a good friend of mine, former PhD student. Uh, anything good, he says, you can blame me. Uh, and anything bad, he says, that comes from someone else. So, uh, <laughs> Dr. Johnson. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I uh, appreciate Joe's presentation. We had a good discussion, I thought, the kind of discussions that we'd like to have as part of our council. Now, the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics started in 2008. I had come away from a debate at the Evangelical Theological Society in 2007. I was in a debate with a guy, and I came away thinking that Traditional dispensationalists, like you know, the people who hold to the position that this church holds at Sugarland Bible Church, uh, we don't have a forum where we can get together and talk about issues with ourselves. Uh, we go to all kinds of meetings and talk about other things, but we're not we're not really dealing with a wide array of hermeneutics and theological method and theological questions amongst ourselves. So we started the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics to meet that need. Our annual meeting every year is usually in September, and we were scheduled to be here last year, but uh, Nicholas uh, kind of blew us away, so we did it on Zoom, and uh, we're very thankful to the church here for allowing us to come back for a mini version of that conference. Our annual conference is a two-day conference. This year, we'll be uh, talking about does dispensationalism matter, and we'll be in San Diego at the uh, Southern California Seminary. That's David Jeremiah's seminary out on the West Coast. So we appreciate your prayers for us. We're one of, the, one of many different churches and organizations and schools who are doing their best to take a, a stand on a literal interpretation of the Bible and the advancement of what we call dispensationalism. Uh, and so we appreciate that. And we are a discussion group more than a presenter group at the annual meeting. The guys only have 30 minutes. And then we have an hour discussion. Here, I've given them more than that, although, Joe, I think you, you made your 30 minutes. So I don't know about Elliot, but we'll, <laughs> we'll find out. The next one up is Elliot Johnson. He is one of my dear friends, one of the deans of dispensationalism today. He is uh, retired from Dallas Theological Seminary. And Elliot, you go ahead and share with us what's on your heart. Okay. Well, I appreciate you all moving forward. And if any of you at the fringes want to come forward, Further, I would hope you would. Um, I was telling my wife what I'm planning to do, and she said, You know, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to try to do. 
Uh, I'm actually introducing four ideas that are somewhat foreign to our discussion. So I'm going to read it. We have some papers here. If any of you need copies of it, yeah, great. Um, I don't think that's it. There it is. You got a, do we have any more? There we see. We this is a Baptist church for a moment. Um, see, it seems to me that the academy, the seminary exists for the church it is the church that the lord promised will succeed didn't promise any seminary will succeed so but he did promise that the church would so dispensationalism is certainly a topic that began in the seminary but it began from men who were very much involved in the local church Dr. Chafer was, Dr. Walford was, uh, Dr. Ryrie was. So, and we have been. Uh, I just retired after 47 years at Dallas. I don't know how it took that long or went so quickly. We had left and spent four years in the Philippines starting a school, but it was a, it was operated by the many of the mission boards that didn't want to have a very careful theology at the foundation of the school. And so when we came home, we, were, we had four children at the time. We came home planning to teach at Trinity. Dr. Pentecost asked us to teach for one year at Dallas Seminary, and it turned out to be 47 years. We also had six children, by the way. Two more while we were students, while we were teaching at Dallas. So it's with that brief background that I'd like to, I'll read it. I may stop at points and discuss it, and then we'll have questions. So we all appreciate dispensationalism because it is rooted in Scripture. And as, and here I'm using a term that some of you, we mentioned earlier, as a unified theology. Should we expect the contents of Scripture to tell one complete story? It is the thesis of this paper that it tells a complete narrative with a beginning, a middle, and an end. As such, it gives expression to what the title says, a biblical theology. So there are three ideas here. One is, I'm going to try to demonstrate that dispensationalism tells the story of the Bible. As such, it's going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I think the beginning is Genesis 1 through 11. I think the middle are the four Gospels. I think the end are the apocalyptic books. So I'm grateful that we're sharing the pulpit. <laughs> Well, I'm sitting on the floor, but. Um, and that's the way the story unfolds. Now, the third thing that I want you to see, I'm going to call it a biblical theology. And I'm distinguishing that from a systematic theology. Very interesting, when Dr. Ryrie wrote 
his systematic theology, it didn't have anything to do with dispensationalism. It was just theology proper, person of God, person of Christ, person of the Holy Spirit, and it was almost a thematic, and that's the word I've used here, or topical study of the Bible. I'm going to try to argue that there's a worldview that the Bible is telling us. A, an overall story. And we're at a place in the overall story. So that's the things I'm going to try to suggest. Now, second paragraph. Since its heyday in the 20th century, there has remained a question about one essential of its sine qua non. We had that introduced last hour, or literal interpretation. Charles Ryrie taught us that literal interpretation, defined as the normal or plain language use, or normal use of language, helped avoid the distortions of allegorical interpretation present in covenant theology. And I think there's, there's valid validity to that. But it's also a question, and we'll try to develop that. The question that remains revolves around what literal means. The common answer has been a normal use of language. Now, this may be a little technical for you, but so, if there are ten entries of one word in the lexicon, and nine of those ten use the word in the same meaning, then those nine would share the literal meaning. Kevin Van Hooser, again, no one of you know that, know him, but, and he's not a dispensationalist, has proposed that literal interpretation should be defined as an author's literary rather than language use. The claim rests on the contention that literary is a more natural way to characterize what we're doing in normal interpretation. Whereas formerly, literal interpretation rested in the way language is normally used in various different contexts. Literary rests in the way the language is used in the immediate context. It is the author's intended meaning expressed in the literary context that defines the literal interpretation. Now, should we consider changing our definition of literal interpretation. So that's the fourth thing I'd like to contend for. I would like to contend. I would propose that, in fact, that is a necessary change to be made. We will still advocate literal interpretation, but define it as literary interpretation. Now, the older definition of literal has had some perplexing problems. 
In a crucial example, Habakkuk 2.4, the verb, and this is the Hebrew verb, emunah, is normally translated in the Hebrew lexicon as faithfulness. So, the passage would be translated, the righteous one will live by his faithfulness. And then I've added in a bracket, this is recognized as a suitable alternative by the Christian standard by, that's the current Baptist translation. It's also recognized by the ESV in a marginal reading. The Net Bible, which is the Dallas Bible, Dallas faculty produced it, have this as their reading in Habakkuk 2.4. Yet, when in Romans 1.17, Paul quoted Habakkuk 2.4, and writes, and by the way, I agree that Old Testament may be used in various ways in the New Testament. The principal clue is the introductory formula. What introduces that use of the Old Testament? Here it is, just as it is written. It would seem that Paul is saying, what I'm saying is exactly what Habakkuk said. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I'm contending that inerrancy would validate Paul's textual interpretation as correct, and thus what Habakkuk ought to mean. Thus, literal as normal language has introduced confusion. In a literary use, Habakkuk 2.4 contains a principle of judgment. God is introducing Habakkuk 2, and he's telling Habakkuk, be careful to write down everything I'm going to say, because this principle of judgment will apply both to the enemy the Chaldeans who are coming, as well as applying to Habakkuk. So Habakkuk 2.4 contains a principle of judgment. And that, that, that judgment prescribes a person standing before God, which rests on what one believes, not in what one is consistently doing. Now, granting this understanding of literal interpretation, the dispensational model of biblical theology changes somewhat. Now, I'm going to introduce some of those changes that I perceive. This is where you're going to hit me now. <laughs> okay? Um, so, granting that understanding of literal interpretation, the dispensational model of biblical theology changes somewhat. Let me just stop again and say, I'm using the word model because my conception isn't inerrant. God's word is inerrant. I've constructed a model which I hope is free from error, 
but it may prove to be not. So it is not inerrant. It's a model. Now, as Ryrie acknowledged, the number of dispensations is not an agreed-upon conclusion. That's one of the areas where there's been difference of opinion. Nor is it a revealed issue. Does the Bible ever say there are seven dispensations? Now, there at Dallas Seminary are seven arches in the building. That was that generation's interpretation. That was their model. I'm going to suggest a different model. In Genesis, the literary genre is narrative history. It's historical fact, but brought together as a narrative. Another way of saying it, brought together as a story. Doesn't mean it's fictitious. It's history. But it's told not like modern history is written. So it's narrative history. And Genesis 1 through 11 is the literary setting that sets the stage for the historical account that follows. Thus, it expresses the beginning of the story rather than three dispensations. These three have caused problems for me. The dispensations are disproportionately brief compared to promise, law, grace, which are mentioned in Scripture. In addition, they are defined differently. Now, Ryrie's latest writing in his final definition of dispensation is, a dispensation is a distinguishing economy in the outworking of God's purposes. That's quite close to progressive revelation. The outworking of God's purposes. And it's on page 20. By the way, you're also getting me as a typist. When I was at Dallas Seminary, I had a secretary. She did all of the typing. She knew how to do footnotes. I am becoming an expert. One finger, 25 hours later. <laughs> but I don't know how to do footnotes. <laughs> so you'll have to put up with what I have. That is distinct from the way the first three dispensations would be defined. Quote, a period of time during which man is tested in respect to obedience to some specific revelation of God's will. This is the definition found in the Schofield Reference Bible. Further, the prominence of the test of obedience may have contributed to the early confusion concerning salvation by faith. Rather than changing our definition of a dispensation. In other words, I'd like to use what Ryrie has in his most recent writing expressed. It is preferable to, to consider the definition of literal interpretation as understanding meaning in the context 
of literary usage. The result would reframe Genesis 1 through 11. So let me start with Genesis 1 through 11. If the change is accepted, in other words, you're willing to consider literal as literary interpretation, then Genesis 1 through 11 sets the stage for God's addressing of evil. Let me just stop there for a moment. (laughs) It's a strange time. In Uvalde, Texas, the evil that was expressed has a much more prominent role than I ever realized until this last year. I was working, I have a group of men that meet on Thursday mornings for a Bible study. We were studying the book of Revelation. And the presence of evil that is going to be addressed in the book of Revelation became clearer as I taught it, perhaps becoming more aware because of the context in which we're living. So it seems to me that God sets the stage addressing evil in Genesis 1 through 11. Now, God created a good creation. While evil, now this is what I'm going to suggest, was permitted at the fringes. You know, we don't even know who the serpent is until he's introduced in chapter 3. Where does the serpent come from? Well, we understand the animal, but we don't understand the voice that is speaking through the serpent. Where does that come from? Well, I'm going to suggest in the initial that evil first appears in Genesis 1-2. Dispensationalism tried to give an explanation. Now the earth was without form and empty. Darkness covered the face of the deep. We're never told where darkness was created. Yet, on the first day of creation, and this is the second appearance of evil, when God created light, he didn't use light to replace darkness. He merely created light to share with darkness. So there was a light period, a dark period, that was day one. A light period, a dark period, day two. Now both of these conditions are later referred to in the Bible in a more metaphorical sense as representing the power and presence of of the Lord, light, and of evil, darkness. Remember in Genesis, I mean John 13, when Judas had been identified, he went out and it was night. It was night. He had left the light of God's presence. And it was night. And you know the consequences of that as Judas commits suicide. So I think at the very beginning of the account in Genesis, there, is, there, are, is a, there are clues that God allowed evil 
in the creation. So let me pick it up. God's purpose in addressing evil would begin with the creation of Adam and Eve to mediate his, God's rule on earth. I also appreciate McLean's discussion of the mediatorial kingdom. I think that's the form of the kingdom. God is ruling. That has never been challenged. But he mediated to Adam or delegated to Adam a mediatorial rule on earth. And Adam then proceeded. So let me go ahead. In the garden, that mediation would revolve around the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eating from that tree would incorporate evil in whatever Adam said or did. While God named the tree good and evil, he had not yet directly distinguished between the two. What is good? What is evil? We know they're opposites, but we don't know, in fact, what is evil. That will begin, by the way, in chapter 3. So when Adam ate of the fruit of the tree, by the way, is Adam that ate it? Eve sinned first, but Adam was responsible. And it seems to me he lost his rule to the serpent. Now that's something that is not often emphasized. I think it's important. Now Adam no longer ruled on earth the serpent, or Satan, did. Further, both Adam and Eve died, as God had warned. The serpent now ruled the creation as the power of the air, who now rules in children of disobedience. Adam was a child of disobedience. Evil ruled over him. He disobeyed when he accepted the serpent's temptation, and rejected God's word. So, and Adam and Eve would ultimately be cast out of the garden. So, in Genesis 3 through 11, God reset his purposes to overcome evil and have mankind included in opposing evil. Have you ever wondered, after Adam sinned and fell, why did God want to include man as agents of opposing evil? I think God, in choosing us, cho chose flawed characters. However, he's going to provide a structure in which their role will be laid out. So number one, he restored Adam and Eve in relationship with God through a sacrificial, sacrificial covering for each. Now, I would argue that Adam believed God when God said 
Eve would become the mother of the living. Even though God had warned them, in the day you eat thereof, you surely die. He believed God to take care of the evil and to take care of he and Eve. Eve would become the mother of the living. So I take it that that is the first expression of salvation by faith. Secondly, he delegated the judgment of the serpent. I probably should have had to and from the promised descendant of the woman. Now, I have changed the word from seed to descendant. Descendant suggests singular. Seed is a collective word. We could have used either one, but I believe that God had a prophecy in Genesis 3.15 that anticipated Jesus Christ. Number three. Now here's here's one you may not agree with. To institute the Noahic Covenant in which human government is delegated to mankind with the responsibility of protecting human life. Genesis 9, 1 through 17. A fourth one, to judge the city life at Babel by dividing the population into different language speakers and nations. Genesis, it's actually Genesis 10, where the genealogy is found of the different nations, but Genesis 11 of the evil city. This introduces four purposes of God to confront the basic problem of evil in the fallen creation through mankind in relation to God. I believe we're still in this structure to some degree. We'll see how that unfolds. Thus, the framework for confronting evil in response to the usurped rule of Satan in human history, was set. Three books reflect these purposes. The Gospels, and I actually treat them as one book, but the Gospels, the four Gospels, are transitional books which set the new stage consisting of and following Messiah's first advent. So it seems to me that's the stage in which we're currently living. The Gospels set that stage. Then Daniel and Revelation draw these purposes to a fulfillment. That's the conclusion. So we have a beginning, Genesis 1 through 11. We have the middle, the Gospels. We have the conclusion, the apocalyptic books. So I'm glad we're going to share in that discussion. I don't know what's going to be said. Do they allow, on Wednesday night Bible study, do they allow questions? Oh, good. (laughs) I like to have a little fun when we we study. So if you don't mind, (laughs) I'll I'll do some of that teasing. So um, the last paragraph before the... In each of these books, the advent of the seed of the woman 
will represent the initial fulfillment. Here I agree with what we said last hour. In the serpent striking the heel of Messiah. The Gospels also anticipate the final fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. So if I meant something as already, a portion of what was said is already fulfilled. A portion is not yet fulfilled. The Synoptic Gospels' Olivet Discourse reveals the second advent of the woman's descendant who controls the climax of human history. So each of these three books will be examined more closely to sketch their role in the fulfillment of a biblical theology. Gospels. The Gospels are narrative li historical literature. Each feature the completion of prophecy of Messiah in his first advent. Now this is an overly simplistic summary. But in the synoptics, Messiah is revealed as the servant of the Lord, introduced in Isaiah 40 through 53. Mark, in particular, features the servant of the Lord who was baptized and transfigured. By the way, those are the two experiences where God the Father steps into the Son's experience. They were baptized, and they're not in the Gospel of John, and transfigured, anticipating Christ's future reign. The Gospel of John featured the hardening of the hearts of the people, Isaiah chapter 6. Although many believed in his name, even among the rulers. By the way, John chapter 12, verses 37 to 43, is fascinating. <laughs> the quotation of Isaiah 6. Therefore they couldn't believe, because he hardened their hearts. Yet many did believe. An interesting writing. Then all four Gospels reached their climax in the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ. This alludes to Genesis 3.15 as the serpent strikes the woman's seed. This revelation of the Gospel introduces four new purposes which will govern our age of grace in confronting and overcoming evil. So again, we're keeping our focus on evil. First is the proclamation of the gospel. I believe that's what we ought to be doing primarily today. That ought to be a primary focus. Our local church has a ministry to our community. Our community have a number of poor people, although we have them coming from across the metroplex, for food that we are distributing, and in the process, communicating the gospel to them. This is a segment of our population, in Arlington at least, which are receptive to the gospel. They're willing to hear. Secondly, the experience of transformation over evil in the believer. 
by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now what's introduced in John 7 is further developed in the epistles, as is number one. Number three, to build believers into the church. Matthew 16, which is the body of Christ on earth, which continues the Great Commission. Matthew 28. Number four, to be Christian citizens in national governments. Now the passage I've quoted here is from our Lord's words to Pilate. His kingdom and the kingdom of this world. It seems like we are citizens of both. We can talk about that further. Apocalyptic revelation. Now I'm going to transition. <laughs> Apocalyptic translation consists of visions of the ultimate resolution of the conflict between Satan and God. Those visions of the end are introduced by conflict in history of the nations between Satan and God. So both Daniel and Revelation begin with the presence of conflict in history which finds final revolution, resolution in the final, in the visions. Um, let me see. So this, I'm, I'm reading it too far ahead. Okay, the book of Daniel and Revelation are both prophetic, no question, in reference, but apocalyptic in literary form. <clears throat> Daniel was a deported servant of God from Israel to Babylon. After the nation Israel had forsaken God and the people were about to go into captivity, this will introduce what Jesus would call the times of the Gentiles. He calls it that in one of the Olivet Discourse accounts in the Gospel of Luke. A very fascinating verse. Daniel was part of the remnant going into captivity. His role was to interpret God's vision of four glamorous Gentile nations, starting with Babylon and given to Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 2. Then also, as a parallel vision... He received, Daniel received, and envisioned the same four, but as vicious beasts, I could have said, or vicious nations. Their reign on earth reached a climax as heaven weighed in and chose the Son of Man, the stone not cut out with hands, as the final mediator of God's rule. So Daniel will focus evil found in the nations as they will be judged. We see that today. Could I say we see that in our nation? Now, supplementing these visions with Daniel chapter 9. In it, God decreed 77s of years 
to accomplish God's purposes through Israel and the holy city. One, to bring rebellion to an end. Two, to put a stop to sin. Three, to atone for iniquity. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal up vision and prophecy. Six, to anoint the most holy place. When God appointed Israel to have certain purposes, they, Israel, will accomplish what God intended. And it's laid out in the following way. These purposes will be realized through the anointed one, the Messiah. In his first advent, Messiah will be cut off in fulfillment of the serpent striking the heel of the seed of the woman. We've talked about that. Then full accomplishment of his purposes begins before and at the second advent. After Messiah was cut off, he will have nothing. And Jerusalem would be destroyed. Chapter 9, verse 26, we know that happened in AD 70. And it is actually referred to, I believe, in Luke 21, 24. A parenthesis of silence appeared after 69, 7 have passed and before the seventh heaven, which was yet to appear, seven-year period, will usher in the second advent of Messiah, as the first two earlier visions had indicated. At his return, at Christ's return, the desolator, Satan, will be destroyed as the serpent's head is struck. That alludes back to Genesis 3.15. Final book, Revelation. The second apocalyptic book overlaps themes introduced in Daniel. The intervening period after the 69th 7, about which Daniel is silent, is the church age. And the seven churches are introduced, representing the present time of John the Apostle, who pastored the church at Ephesus. Like Daniel, the conflict of evil appeared in history, but this time in the churches, rather than the nations, as with Daniel. Chapters 2 and 3. I think the key term. In this conflict is the Greek word nikao, or nikao, translated as either overcomer or conqueror. By the way, if you check how this word is translated in the book of Revelation, it's an interesting example of literal interpretation. I think the word has to be interpreted in context, and I'll try to show you that. In the church age, evil will be a struggle for each believer and in each church. Only one church has no evil mentioned as present, Philadelphia. But in each letter, 
There is a promise to one who is willing to hear and the overcomer of evil will receive a reward. Now that's a, again, a debated interpretation that you find in all seven letters. Now, the next paragraph. The same term appears in the visions, chapters 4 through 19. Now again, I'm interpreting it differently than the majority here. In which the white-horsed rider, whether he appears in chapter 6 or chapter 19, is introduced as the conqueror. Now that's that same word, nikeo, who rides forth to conquer evil, present on earth. In the climax, he conquers as he makes war for justice at the Battle of Armageddon. He will rule with a rod of iron as king of kings, lord of lords, for 1,000 years. During the years of tribulation, seven years, he both opens the seals and is the white horse rider on the first seal as conqueror going forth from God's throne. These visions expand upon the 70th week of Daniel 9.27. Thus, the nations formed out of the human race will be defeated as agents of the dragon. As you know, the dragon in Revelation is Satan. And led by the Roman beast. Revelation 13, 17, 19. Those are all terms picked up from Daniel. Except dragon. Dragon doesn't appear in Daniel. Now the final purpose of God to be realized is the confrontation of evil in the cities of the world. This is a new idea that I'm suggesting and would appreciate any interaction with this. So the cities of the world. Mystery, you have a book on this. I'm tempted to steal one from the back table. You have to put a... Oh. Mystery Babylon the Great will appear in Rome as the city of Babel had. But evil will destroy itself as the beast carried Babylon to prominence only to turn against Babylon in jealousy to destroy it. It's a most interesting story in Revelation 17. The city will be replaced after the second advent of Messiah by the new Jerusalem. The city descends from heaven as part of the new heavens and new earth. Yet it first appears in the present creation during the millennial kingdom. The glory of the city will be expressed in the convergence of glory of the throne sitter and the light of the Lamb. And so in history of the present creation, God's purposes both of establishing a mediatorial rule or a mediated rule of God 
on earth and a reconciliation of the redeemed from the fallen world. Both purposes are fulfilled. See, covenant theology only has the one, not the other. We would argue for, I would argue for both. That completes the story and presents a biblical theology which tells the story of the characters in a systematic theology. We know this theology as as dispensationalism. It is to be preferred among the various models of biblical theology because it rests consistently on the progress of revelation within the whole canon of Scripture. So, let's discuss it. Any questions? Robbie? My dear friend. Very good. I really enjoyed that. It gave me a lot to think about. Um, On the first page at the bottom, where you are talking about the issues there related to Genesis 1 to 11 and the three initial dispensations. And you quote Ryrie's definition as a dispensation as a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purposes. Then on the top of the next page, you're quoting from, I think that Schofield Reference Bible, that's a period of time during which man is tested in respect to obedience to a specific revelation of God's will. Now my question is, question and comment, what then is it that distinguishes, that makes an economy distinguishable And what I have argued is that what makes it distinguishable is a specific revelation of God's God's will. I'm suggesting that it would be more consistent to allow, if we interpret within the literary context, then Genesis 1 through 11 is not three distinct dispensations but rather one literary preface for the biblical history. I think that it's better. It's very interesting. What Ryrie does in his book on dispensationalism, he, he, he comes to a final definition. By the way, that is after the progressive dispensational model was introduced. He came to this where he emphasizes much more progress of revelation, but he came to the a dispensation as a distinguishable economy. He doesn't want a time, but a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purposes. Then when he defines the first three dispensations, he uses rather the definition that Chafer, that was early in the uh, the uh, oh Schofield 
reference Bible. And well, I see, think he changes definition. Yeah, see, this is a, 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 a kind of a conundrum when you're teaching this because oikonomia is a word that will often emphasize this, Ryrie emphasized this, that it is talking about uh, the characteristics of this economy, it is not inherently a time word. That's right. Okay, the problem with that is if you, t and the comparison often, you talk about Nixon's administration, Reagan's administration, Clinton's administration, even though the focal point of talking about their administration is the characteristics of what? the time that it was in there. So, so time may not be at the front of the concept, but it's not absent from the concept. Okay, here's where I, here's where I have a problem. The dispensation of promise. Galatians suggests that the law didn't replace promise, but was added alongside of. So it seems to me that promise and the Abrahamic covenant in particular was a continuing revelation throughout the Old Testament and law was added alongside of it. Now today we're not under law but we're under an expression of promise in the gospel. But there still is promise. What's well, a different promise isn't that's it? That's right. We're under different promises. But Israel still will realize, and this was the new covenant that we were discussing. Exactly. Actually, yeah. like your answer, that we are looking forward to the new covenant being ratified with Israel at the conclusion of the tribulation period. Romans nine, then all or Romans eleven, then all Israel will be saved. It seems to me that that is the ratification. Today, I think the book of Hebrews speaks of the new covenant based on the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And the word that I would share with you is beneficiary. We are beneficiaries. This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. We benefit from his death on the cross. Okay, back to the original question, which is when you look at what is it that distinguishes these economies, you look at the beginning, you have God giving specific revelation to Adam in the garden. Uh, you can eat from anything, but don't eat from this tree. You are to... Uh, you are to subdue and rule over the earth. You are to multiply and fill the earth. You have a series of about six or seven commands that are given between Genesis 1, 26 to 28 and into chapter 2 and one prohibition. What happens if you list them and then you look at the consequences of the sin that are identified in what is normally called the curse. They relate to those uh, mandates. Be fruitful and multiply. To the woman you will conceive in 
um, have multiplied pain in, in childbirth. And the man is to guard and keep the garden. Now there are going to be thorns and thistles. So you see each of those categories are repeated. Then you come to the uh, Genesis 9 and the Noahic Covenant. And you see the same categories are again uh, modified. Except for ruling. Except for what? Ruling. Right. I mean, he That's not repeated. That's right. But uh, that's what I'm saying. It's a modification. Yes. Of. That's correct. Genesis 3, which is a modification of the perfect state. By the way, we, uh, we have taken that be fruitful and multiply literally. Amen. We have six children, 21 grandkids. And that's what we're doing using our book, our retirement. We're in Houston partly to be with our. The only way I could persuade my wife to come with me was that we're going to visit the grandkids tomorrow, Friday. <laughs> and uh, no, it's just that was I'm sorry. That's OK. But I mean, you know, it's where we are doing. I mean, at least we took it as a couple that it was our decision that we wanted God to work out in our lives. And we had not planned for that. In fact, the medical doctor had told my wife she would never have any children. Well, we've always gone, wanted to go back and visit him. <laughs> With all it's, the kids. It's practicing medicine. Yeah. So, but we've, you know, we, is that legitimate to take that as a continuing promise? Our continuing command? Well, we're, we're supposed to eat meat. When yeah. you see the rainbow. Well, that's, that's certainly related to the. You, you see the rainbow. The rainbow is a promise of three things. I won't destroy the earth by water again. Eat meat. Kill murderers. Yeah, that's right. And we can be sure that God is not going to judge the earth in the same way. He did with a universal flood. He's going to judge, but right. not the same way. So back to my point here is that you, you don't, I don't see this as an, that Ryrie's definition at the bottom of page one and Schofield's as mutually exclusive. It's not an either or. It, they're, they're, it's a distinguishable economy because God has revealed distinctions in what he has said in Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3, and Genesis 9. Yeah, I agree. I mean, what you're saying is correct. I think there's a better way to look at the development of the story than to start with three dispensations. Maybe that's a clearer way of saying it. Okay. I got my, I got these guys were, we had, we were in class together. This guy was even in law and came to Dallas for a degree, for a course. Actually, I had a, a course with you and me, and that was it. Remember that? I do. Concordia Seminary St. Louis allowed one course away from their program, and you were the one. <laughs> I have a question about Hirsch. Uh, using the term literary versus literal, 
Are you understanding that in this Hirschian sense of genre? Yes. That's what we're understanding. Okay. Does this open up then interpreting the scripture in a literary fashion that would be allegorical and certainly typological, but allegorical versus our normal understanding of the plain sense of the words, uh, you know, versus the allegory that developed it under Philo and afterwards? Yeah. Well, allegory, of course, you are, you're familiar that parables are a variety of allegory. They're a story with an analogous point. Whether there are multiple participants in the story, or just like Matthew 13, one, or there may be many like Ezekiel 16. But I would say that, that allegory, as it's used, for example, uh, by Reformed theology earlier, where you have, I can't even think of the guy's name now, but he was one of the earlier ones, who was saying the conquest really happened. See, parables, the thing didn't really happen. It's only true to life. It's not life itself. So the conquest of, he would say the conquest really happened under Joshua. But it's, it really teaches us a spiritual allegorical truth of our operation as Christians in the Christian life and righteousness and on and on, which has nothing to do with fighting a real war. I distinguish those ideas. Would you not or not? Well, I would say we can interpret allegorically when we're dealing with a parable or with, as you have in Ezekiel 16, an allegory. You know, the, the child was thrown out and the wealthy man came along and raised the child and so forth. I think we would interpret that allegorically, but that doesn't include interpreting narrative as allegorically. Yeah, I'm still going to fight back on that a little bit. I don't understand a parable as allegory because the way allegory operated, at least with Philo and the Greeks at that time when it developed, they really believed these were events that actually occurred. I don't think parables really occur. They're only teaching a lesson from what theoretically could occur because it's true to life. But allegories are dealing with things that really did occur. And you put another meaning to them versus the actual event itself. The event carries additional meaning and better meaning and spiritual meaning. I think that's different than a parable. Well, and I would say, in rejoinder, I would say I would understand allegory as used in Scripture, not by Philo, okay, but as used. When Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, was there a Samaritan that he had in mind? Well, there's no indication that there was. No. He was characterizing him as expressing the kind of love that he would express. And there doesn't need to be. I mean, it can be historically realistic without being true to the fact. Right. And right. that's what I would say is happening in Jesus' parables. Okay. But they're different than Philo is dealing with. It's different than was introduced in the early centuries of the church at Alexandria. Yeah, well, this. Uh, I mean, I would agree. That is primarily addressed to eschatology. You know, when you have future things, you use that technique of interpretation. Um, 
And I would agree that that's an inadequate uh, use of allegory. But if you allow me to include some literary genre that is allegorical, right. then I would use an allegorical interpretation of that limited genre alone. Okay. I guess we can discuss that more, but I, I, I'm working in this area right now. And, for example, Philo didn't invent this. Philo got this from the Greeks who were trying because they had come to believe that all these gods and all these stories and precipitating all these things really didn't happen as such. But people believe, people believe they happen. Hmm. So the Greeks had to come in and somehow explain by some uh, way that they, they taught lessons. They weren't really events. They taught lessons. Hmm. And so... That's where Philo went because Philo didn't deal with eschatology so much. Philo was interested in trying to explain away the law with all of his hard sayings and events that occurred. Something like the Reformed guy. Well, the battle, I'm, we're not advocating that. See, that's only teaching a lesson. Yeah. And, and so he tried to explain away the Bible by allegory. Yeah. See, I would not, for instance, interpret Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation account. It's a narrative, right. but it's narrative history. It's, it's, a refer, it's a way of describing reality that is not the way modern history is written. Right. Okay. Thank you. I love it. My dear friends. All right. Well, thank you. I agree with your big picture. I just had a couple questions on the sure. details. Sure. Um, the last page um, looks like about the fifth paragraph, well, second full paragraph. Are, are you equating the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6 with uh, Jesus? I am! Okay. I am! I just wanted to double check on that. That's the Zane Hodges view, right? Zane Hodges has written the most definitive discussion of the white horse rider on 6 and 19 in Bibsack, I was persuaded. Okay. Um, and then I love you. <laughs> well, I mean, we could talk about that sometime. Um, yeah. To me, it's just kind of awkward to have Jesus in heaven opening the seven-sealed scroll, and then he's also the rider on the white horse. and. I agree. Uh, and of course, I agree. This is a vision, however. Jesus is supposed to bring in, you know, everlasting peace and war breaks out in the second seal. But anyway. Well, it's it seems to me that evil has to be dealt with. Okay. The other thing, I noticed you used the word mystery Babylon, where you've got yeah. mystery. That's, as you know, that's um, debated whether... You know, mystery is capitalized in the King James, but it's not capitalized in the NASB. And so, you know, there's a there's an exegetical issue there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to okay. looking okay. at your book. And uh, I found Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 mm -hmm. as a most confusing feature. Now, can I give you a speculation at this point? Now, that's speculation. If you've read anything about the current reset in worldwide government, 
I would anticipate Babylon becoming an expression of that and multiplying other cities. Mm -hmm. You opposed to that? No. I'm starting to like you more and more, I think. <laughs> the, the, other, the other question I have is about the darkness in yeah. Gen Genesis 1. Yeah. I'm, I'm having a difficult time seeing that as evil. Be, I mean, I understand it's used that way in John's Gospel, but that's a totally different book. It's a totally different author. I'm just questioning how legitimate it is to read John's usage all the way back into Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, especially since God said it's all very good and the this, fall of this, man hasn't happened yeah. yet, and etc. Yeah, you weren't here when Walkie was here. Okay. <laughs> Walkie had a... In fact, he presented it in, in Portland, um, an argument that Genesis 1-2 is describing a condition that is pre-Genesis 1-1. That this earth was occupied by Lucifer as a beautiful angel and who, in Isaiah 14, became prideful of his own beauty, was judged, and that resulted in the condition of the earth in Genesis 1-2. I think, was that Unger's view as well? Yeah, I, I hadn't heard it from Unger. Unger was at the time, by the way, he was, when he was on the faculty, he was sort of like I am. He would stand there and move his feet like this. <laughs> I'd wondered, what in the world is happening? Now I know what was happening. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you, th you think it's still a viable option that... I think it's a viable it option. It could just be absence of light, nothing to do with evil, because this, the, the luminaries don't come into existence until day four. Yeah, I'm... So yeah, calling it evil... That's certainly a... Uh, you know, you okay. can argue that. Okay. Um, without... Without the earth, now the earth was without form. The earth was empty. Is that a created condition? You know, the other option is take one one, as stating the initial acts of creation, then one two, as the sort of the initial phase of that initial act, sort of like the miracle that our Lord performed when they were. I think they were blind and they and he gave them partial sight and the guy said now I see them as trees walking and then he gave them the full sight is that what's happening in Genesis 1:1 1, 1 and 1:2 1, Again I don't want to take myself too seriously <laughs> and you know I may be wrong here Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And I've I've gone beyond what Walkie Walkie wouldn't agree with me. He, even if he was in that position, he wouldn't have agreed with me. 
But uh, Um, I had a question. Um, where would you put the, the climax of this narrative? Uh, because it seems like it gets all resolved at the end. So if you were going to, you know, diagram as a, as a narrative, where would the climax and what, yeah, what part is the resolution? What God is doing is establishing a nation beginning in Genesis through kings or chronicles. God is establishing a nation that will mother the offspring of the woman and that will be righteous. But what happened is that it was unrighteous. So that as Daniel is going into captivity, you're more or less conceding that what God started with Israel had not been realized. Now it will be realized. That's Daniel, that's Daniel 9. But it won't be realized in human strength. It'll only be realized through Christ. So that is, then I would see, the times of the Gentiles, which is what we're living in today. And the nations, I mean, I, uh, it's time for confession. <laughs> Donald Trump was running for president. At the beginning of his campaign, he was dishing everybody. And I told my class, I'll never vote for Donald Trump. When the election came, I voted for Donald Trump. He was better than the alternative. It's hard to vote in a Christian world. See, this is where I think the progressive dispensationalists have gone astray. They have given the church a role in the culture and box podcasts are an extension of that, which I don't think the church, you learn from the church in, in, Rome, in Revelation 2 and 3, and they're struggling with sin themselves, as, is, as are believers. Again, another, you know, another challenge you could give me is the Nikeo. How do we interpret that in Revelation? Is it overcomer or is it conqueror? And I would say Christ, this is part of the reason I would take you know, the white horse rider, Christ is the conqueror. He is going to conquer evil. I will never conquer evil. But by God's grace, we can overcome evil. By the way, we're celebrating our 61st wedding anniversary. This, and our kids are going to take us out. <laughs> so you're an overcomer. So, yeah, <laughs> my dear wife is overcome. Um, we need to cut it short. I'm sorry, Joe. Uh, it's 15 till 4. Next session's at 4. Let's take a break. Uh, and, we'll, Sorry. and let's give uh, Elliot a hand for putting up with us. <laughs> Thank you. Listen, so good to see all of you. Thank you.